0: I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Jeremiah 16, a new twist on a common message. By this point in our text, we have heard a common message of judgment any number of times. This is not exactly going to let up as we continue through the book. In fact, it's the theme of Jeremiah in many uh, ways, and yet... What we have seen throughout the book is that the message is by no means just redundant, either in that day or in our day today. In that day, most certainly the message was not redundant because it spanned nearly 50 years of ministry, right? we've said many a time that the elements of the messages we read them today um though they seem semi-repetitive would certainly not have been repetitive in that day as jeremiah is preaching what we have broken into 52 chapters over effectively 50 years of ministry and to that end um you know one chapter a year. If I preached one chapter of Jeremiah a year, it wouldn't get old uh, because we would be only getting through one chapter of Jeremiah a year, right? That's not not too bad. Hardly an overbearing message by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we also regard that the message was given to different portions of the nation at different times and in different contexts and such. So certainly in Jeremiah's day, this message would not have by any means uh, been overbearing or redundant. Now we don't have such time, right? We we're getting the message week after week. We're we're not doing one message in Jeremiah a year, uh, and we're getting this in a little bit more of kind of the fire hose, flood gate opening type fashion. And on the surface, this might cause us to feel as though this message is getting redundant. Uh, our, our eyes begin to glaze over. We start skimming rather than reading, right? Because it's the same thing over and over. It's judgment, judgment, judgment. It's doom, 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 destruction, destruction, destruction. But this would be a mistake for several reasons. First, in the Bible, as with anything in life, repetition implies importance, right? When something is repeated, it's repeated because it is important. The more a message repeats in Scripture, the more we should perk our ears and focus our thoughts. Second, revelation is progressive, We have talked about this in several different contexts. The idea uh, of progressive revelation, meaning that as we read from week to week, from judgment to judgment, the repetition of concepts causes our mind to notice very distinctly when something is, in fact, different, right? When something changes. Perhaps you have noticed this before. This is one of those wonderful things about human nature, that if you do something enough times, or if you've seen something enough times, then even if you're not actually engaging your mind, you see when something is off. I don't know, maybe you've seen this in your car before, uh, where, I don't know if this works for everyone, it doesn't seem to work with my wife, but where, you know, you're driving and all of a sudden one of the gauges is off, and you never really look at the gauges actively, but when you see one of the gauges isn't Where it normally is, it's like your mind keys in on that, there's something different here, and you just notice it. You just notice it, or there's a new sound, right? And you're just driving, and all of a sudden there's a new sound, and you don't normally listen for sounds, and yet you hear the new sound because it's just different. There's something different going on, and we notice differences. You're walking into the house and something has been moved from a shelf, and you weren't looking at the shelf, nor do you normally look at the shelf, but you can, you immediately see there's something different about that shelf. You may not even know what's different just yet about the shelf, and you have to stare at it for a moment before you say, oh, I know what's different about that shelf. That thing is there, or that thing isn't there that is normally there. We have this wonderful capacity that God has given to us as humans to recognize patterns, to understand repetition, and then when something changes we can identify or that change kind of bubbles up to the top the human mind is so very good at this about seeing patterns and then recognizing even if just subconsciously when something isn't quite right when something doesn't fit the pattern well we're introduced to just such an occasion this evening just such a situation we're going to hear many of the same judgments expressed in slightly different ways, but then in the midst of these common expressions of judgment, there's going to be a little something different, a little something extra added, which I believe is very significant. And this significance is easier for us to see than it would be to those in their day, because we're reading this chapter after chapter after chapter. Whereas in the days of Jeremiah, if they're hearing a message of judgment once a year the differences between the messages the slight distinctions may not necessarily bubble up to the top when we're reading the judgments week after week these differences will bubble up quite easily because we're looking at the whole of Jeremiah's burden from this bird's eye view but that being said even in Jeremiah's day the statement which is made toward the end of Jeremiah 16 would almost certainly have caused some ears to perk up and some questions to be raised in the minds of the hearers. So let's dig into the text. We begin in verses 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 16. The Bible says this, The word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, Neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. So we begin this new word of the Lord already in a somewhat startling fashion. The Lord is speaking to Jeremiah and he says to him, don't get married. Don't have kids in this place. We would believe God is speaking directly to Jeremiah and not to the people, specifically because we see, if nothing else, the second person singular pronoun here, right? Thou rather than ye thou uh, and, and it is possible it's not unheard of as i've mentioned before for god to speak of the collective nation with the the second person singular pronoun but for an exhortation and a warning such as this it seems more likely that jeremiah is god's intended target to this message and i believe this will become more clear as we continue to study so god says to jeremiah i believe don't take a wife don't have children don't have sons don't have daughters in this place and God elaborates on this prohibition in verses 3 and 4 he says this for thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters that are born in this place and concerning their mothers that bear them and concerning their fathers that begat them in the land in this land they shall die of grievous deaths they shall not be lamented neither shall they be buried But they shall be as dung upon the face of the earth, and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their carcass shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. So we read again of the doom of the land. Uh, We talked about this in Jeremiah 15, as Jeremiah talked about the woe upon the woman who has seven children because she would be bereaved. Of her children. There will be none left in the land. There will not even be those left to bury the dead. That the mothers, the fathers, the children of the land will be utterly consumed by the judgment of the Lord. And it is for this reason that God tells Jeremiah don't get married, don't have kids because all of the mothers, all of the fathers, all of the children, they're going to die. And while it's not an unreasonable statement, it would be a very startling one in Jewish culture, which has for thousands of years held family and children not just as a privilege in society, but as, in fact, a duty in society. Now, we continue in verses 5 and 6 with another familiar command. The Bible says this, For thus saith the Lord, Enter not into the house of mourning, neither go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, saith the Lord, even loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, nor cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. For what I believe is the fourth time now, in 16 chapters of Scripture, which we've studied, God has told Jeremiah not to pray for these people or, or or Uh, has told him to cease from at least an element of ministry. Typically it's been God telling them not, uh, Jeremiah not to pray for the people. This time it's telling Jeremiah not so much to not pray for them as it is to not mourn for them because they don't deserve to be mourned for. Not because the situation is not mournful. Not because it's not a mournful thing when people die. uh, Not because it's not a mournful thing that judgment is coming. But because these people have had every opportunity to avoid judgment and they chose not to avoid it. By hearing the judgments and choosing to do what was wrong anyway, they are in a manner of speaking choosing to accept the judgment, right? If the Bible says, do this and you shall live, do this and you shall die, and you do the thing that the Bible says, do this and you shall die you're accepting the risk that by doing this thing according to God's word, you're going to die. And it is for this reason that the Lord has taken away his mercy, he says, and the people are without excuse. To this end, God says, the people will not lament, they will not cut themselves, they will not cut their hair. All of these would be um, typical oriental signs of grief and of mourning. Uh, Naturally, it would be within the pagan context that people would cut themselves in time of mourning. Uh, But the idea of cutting their hair, the idea of rending their clothes, uh, the idea of lamentations of this sort would be quite common. And let me just note that the idea of self-mutilation, of cutting yourself in grief or mourning, was a pagan practice that was outlawed, in fact, by the Lord. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, God said this, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. So God specifically said, for the dead, do not mark your bodies, right? For the dead, don't do this. Um that was something that that God would not have wanted but as it relates to the people God says that none of the people in the land will be mourning will be bald will be cutting themselves and the context continues in verse 7 neither shall men tear themselves for them in mourning to comfort them for the dead neither shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. So the idea of tearing themselves here is likely rending their garments. Notice that men and themselves here are in italics. In our King James translation, when you see words in italics, that means that those words are words that the translators supplied. They are not words that are found in the original text, in the original languages. In this case, the original language being Hebrew. In Jeremiah, in the New Testament, the original language being Greek. That these words are not found in the original text. So we don't see actually the word men or themselves in the text. It actually explicitly just says neither shall tear for them in mourning. The idea of men tearing their garments is not outside the possible range of meaning, uh, however, within this context. So finally, as God continues to emphasize the degree to which this judgment will fall and the lack of mourning that will accompany it, he says... Men men shall not um, be bald, men shall not cut themselves, men shall not tear or tear their garments in mourning, and finally, there shall be no cup of consolation given to drink. This again was an oriental custom, whereby friends would give a cup to the grieving ones as a way of communing with them, as a way of mourning with them, as a way of connecting with them, as a, as a, a method of mourning. And God says none of this is going to happen. Verses 8 and 9. Thou shalt not also go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and to drink. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease out of this place in your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. So on verse 8, we go to the other end of the spectrum. Just as God tells Jeremiah, Don't mourn for these people don't shave your head for these people don't rend your clothes for these people don't share the cup for these people these people will not experience it they will not experience mourning so too God says just as strongly God says don't go into the house of feasting with these people don't mourn for them but don't enter into the house to feast or to be merry with them either because God says in your days that is the days of that generation the voice of joy and of celebration would completely cease from the land so God says there's no, no cause to celebrate, but there's also no, you, you have no, no need to mourn for them because they, they're going to get what, what, what's coming, what's, what's been asked by them in a manner of speaking. And yet that doesn't mean you can feast with them because you still know what's going to come. So God says in verse 10, And it shall come to pass, When thou shalt show this people all these words and they shall say unto thee, wherefore hath the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? So God gives this message to Jeremiah. Don't mourn for them. Don't feast with them. Remind them that judgment is coming. And then God warns Jeremiah about how the people are going to react to this message 16 chapters and however many years that Jeremiah has been ministering and when Jeremiah says this message that gives this message that they are going to be judged their response is why? Why is God so angry with us? What have we done? As a parent I've experienced this before. I've told my child on any number of occasions, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And then when they get the consequence for doing it, they say, what have I done? I don't remember you saying that. This is a testimony of the tremendous density of their moral conscience, the moral conscience of the land. And that's the idea. I'd like to think that God is warning Jeremiah of this, not so much for his information, but rather for his emotional preparation. So that he didn't die of ironic despair at the thought that this many years into his ministry, the people don't even seem to understand that the Lord is displeased with them. But that's what God says is going to happen here. God says, you're going to give this message. You're going to not mourn for the people, nor are you going to feast with the people. You're going to declare their judgment again. And they're going to say, why? What have we done? And I think God is just trying to prepare Jeremiah to not fall down when he hears them say, what have we done, right? And to this question, what have we done? What is our iniquity? What is our sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? God tells Jeremiah how to respond to them beginning in verse 11. Verses 11 and 12, the Bible says this, Then shalt thou say, Unto them, because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshiped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. And ye have done worse than your fathers. For behold, ye walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. So Jeremiah's response to their surprise at this message of judgment will be thus. You're going to be judged because your fathers forsook the right way long ago. And we've talked about the sin of Manasseh and and the course that people have been put on even well before that. And he says, but not only that, but you, see, they worshiped other gods. They did not keep my law, but you, you've done worse than them. You've walked in every imagination, that word uh, meaning rebellion, that word meaning stubbornness every imagination of your own heart. If your heart wants to do it, you've followed your heart. You've done it your way. You've been stubborn. You've been obstinate. You've been rebellious. You have not listened. In fact, the very fact that they're wondering why God would judge them this many years into Jeremiah's ministry is a pretty good sign that they aren't doing a good job of caring what God's Word has to say, right? Verse 13. God says, Therefore will I cast you Out of this land into a land that ye know not, neither ye nor your fathers, and there ye shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. Therefore, God says, You're going to be taken out of the land and you're going to be put into a land of strangers. Now, we've heard the statement of judgment so many times, but let me re emphasize to you just how important the land is to Israel. This land that they are in, this is the land of promise, right? The land of Israel that they were in at that time that that they're back into today, that is their land, the land that God had promised. The the physical representation of God's presence with them. When the nation of Israel is in their land, they are in the place of God's promises. When they are out of their land, they are not in the place of God's promises. The heart of God's uh, nation is drawn to the land because the land is the seat of God's promises to them. It was the land of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. It was the land that God brought them out of Egypt to give them. It was the land that that God gave to them. It was the land in which they lived and which God protected. To be taken out of the land is effectively to be taken out of the fountain, fountain of blessing. Let us never overlook the importance of that land to Israel. And and I say that not just about then, but about now. When you see Israelites streaming back into the land, there's a reason why. Because they connect the land of Israel itself so strongly and deeply to the promises that God has given to them in the Old Testament, in the Torah. God gave them that land. God attached his divine blessing to the nation, for the nation to that land. And for God himself to take them out of the land was an extreme judgment, which should always cause us to recognize that God is is warning them about something that ought to have to them been very extreme, very important. To hear a prophet say, God is going to remove you entirely from his land. From the land that he has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ought to have been deeply startling to them. But the statement gets even more interesting in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that, I, that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt... But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he hath driven them, and I will bring them again into the land that I gave unto their fathers. Just as Israel's promises are rooted in the land, so too Israel's perception of redemption is rooted in the Exodus. The Passover feast is about the Exodus, is it not? The Passover feast that Israel observes, that Orthodox Jews observe, that, that, that Judaism observes every year, is a feast that is rooted in their understanding of what happened the night of the Exodus. Moses is the great prophet. The law of Moses is the law that they follow, the law that was given at Sinai when they were brought out of the land of Egypt. And God tells them something very startling here. God says that the day will come when it will no longer be said the Lord liveth that brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but rather the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of the north and notice the end here and from all the lands where they have been driven all back into the land of their fathers. So God is saying that there's coming a day when the identity of the nation, as it relates to their relationship with God, as it relates to their understanding of redemption, specifically in the context of redemption, will transition from the parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the law at Sinai, and the entering of the promised land at Jericho to a regathering and redemption. Now, I cannot emphasize enough how prophetically significant this is. It's easy enough to say that 70 years after the Babylonian captivity began, the nation of Judah was brought back from the land of the north into the land of their fathers. But the regathering of the dispersion, number one, not all that many, population-wise, of the nation of Israel returned out of Babylon into the land. A, a, A remnant did. But even as as late as in the days of the New Testament In the early church There was a large contingency of Jewish people Living in the region of Babylon So many of them did not even return And then the dispersion The regathering of the northern tribes Those ten tribes that were taken 100 years before Jeremiah's ministry began by Assyria the regathering of the two nations into one, it's important for us to understand that what God is saying here has not actually happened yet in its fullness. Nor has the nation ever transitioned its perception of redemption away from the Exodus. Indeed, the Exodus is still the only divine redemption that the whole nation of Israel has experienced. And the only divine record that we have of a second divine redemption that the entirety of the nation will experience is at the end of this age. The salvation which will be realized when they shall look upon him whom they have pierced at the second advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so, what I believe we find here is a promise of something that is yet to take place. Just as we found early in the book, way back in Jeremiah chapter 2 and 3, that God promised that the northern tribes of Israel who had been taken into captivity and who had been scattered throughout the lands, that the northern tribes would be regathered. Here we see, we again see a promise of a regathering, not only of Judah from the land of the north, but we also see a regathering of all the nations from their dispersion, all the lands whither the Lord has driven them. And with that, we see another redemption And not just a second redemption, but a redemption which will be so significant that it will overshadow the redemption of Egypt and cause the nation of Israel to stop associating themselves as a redeemed people because of what happened in the Exodus and begin associating themselves as a redeemed people because of what happens when God regathers them from the nations. And to this day, such a redemption has yet to take place. But before this redemption, God says there must be judgment. And this is the judgment that God gets back to as we get back into verse 16. Before that, however, I want to read to you a a, a portion of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel uh, chapter 20, beginning in verse 33, the Bible says this, and we'll read through verse 44, so it's a, a bit of a chunk here. The Bible says, As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you, and I will bring you out from the people, and I will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with... Fury poured out, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face, like as I pleaded with your fathers. In the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. You see here in Ezekiel chapter 20, the promise of a time that is related to the time of, uh, of the Exodus, that just as there was a time in the Exodus when God would take his people out of the land and he would plead with them. He says, there's coming another time where I will gather you from all the countries wherein you're scattered and I will bring you together and I will plead with you face to face. Verse 37, and I will call cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me, and I will bring them forth out of the country where where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, go ye, serve ye every one his idols. And hereafter also, if ye will not hearken unto me, but pollute ye my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. For in mine holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them, In the land, serve me. There will I accept them. There will I require your offerings and the first fruit of your oblations with all your holy things. I will accept you with your sweet savor, which I bring, uh, excuse me, when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein ye have been scattered. And I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I shall bring you into the land of Israel and into the country for which I lifted up mine hand to give it to your fathers. And there shall ye remember your ways and all your doings wherein ye have been defiled. And ye shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that ye have committed. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have wrought with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel, saith the Lord God. There's a promise of judgment here. And in Ezekiel 20, it's a judgment by the rod, right? God says that he would regather them into the land and that he would judge them in his fury, that he would judge them by the rod and that through this judgment, they would know that he is the Lord and they would commit themselves to him. Redemption is coming And it's a redemption that overshadows the redemption of Egypt. A redemption that will redefine the very concept of what redemption means in the nation of Israel. But before this redemption, Ezekiel 20 says, there must be great judgment. And this is the judgment, as I mentioned, that God gets back to in verse 16. It's also a judgment that corresponds very closely to the manner in which we interpret the revelation of Jesus Christ. That as we have looked prophetically, we look forward to a day when there is a regathering of Israel to its land. And then that regathering uh, uh, brings about a circumstance whereby the nation is is greatly tormented, is greatly persecuted. And it is in that persecution, it is in that sorrow that they turn to the redemption of their Messiah when Jesus Christ returns. So we read in verses 16 and 17. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For mine eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. So God says that he would send fishers to fish the nation. And hunters to hunt the nation from every mountain, hill, and hole in the rock. And initially, my thought in interpreting this would be to connect it to what was just said about God regathering the nation, right? Rather, uh, uh, that um, that it's about God sending those to regather the nation, rather than about what God is about to say about the judgment upon the nation. But I think this verse does speak of judgment, not regathering, and that for several reasons. First. When when the Bible talks about Israel's regathering, God never connects their regathering with others, that he would send others to gather the people, that someone's going to find them and bring them back to the land. But rather, God has always said that he himself would regather them. Second, we see a stronger linguistic link between verses 16 and 17 than we do between verses 15 and 16. Between verses 15 and 16, we have this idea where where, um, God speaks and he says in verse 15, I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. And then he says, Behold, I will send for many fishers. But between verses 16 and 17, we we have a four, right? Right? We have a coordinating conjunction, creating a strong link between them, which I believe links God's promise that he would send fishers, that he would send hunters with his promise of judgment in verse 17. For mine eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. To this end, uh, what I interpret this to mean is that before God can regather, he must first root out He must first find every last child of Israel and pull them away from the land. That any of the nation of Israel that in the days of Jeremiah might be hiding in the rocks, might be hiding in the hills, that God is going to send the fishers and the hunters. And he's going to hunt them and he's going to find them and he's going to catch them and he's going to pull them out of the land and that this land will become completely uninhabited before he begins his regathering. Feel free, of course, to disagree with me. But that's how I interpret verse 16 there, that the hunter and the fisher are not a positive thing. god sending forth individuals to hunt and to fish them back into the land, but rather that God is saying, before I can regather you, I must first find every single one of you in the land and pull you out of the land in judgment. Verse 18. And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double because they have defiled my land. They have filled mine inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. So God gives this glimmer of hope and redemption just like God always does, right? But first God says... First, I must recompense you. I must recompense your iniquity and your sin double. You've not only defiled yourself, but you've defiled my land. The land is filled with abominations and God must not only cleanse them, but he must cleanse the land of the abominations. His land, the land that he gave them, the land within which they were, the land that he entrusted to them had been defiled by them and God says, I must cleanse that. Now, we're three verses out from the end of the chapter and we're about to read something which again should perk our ears. Found in Jeremiah's praise unto the Lord. So we read this in verse 19. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. The Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity and things wherein there is no profit. So Jeremiah prays. And in this prayer, he calls the Lord my strength, my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. Tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, description of our Lord. And then he extols God's faithfulness. And he says this. The Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth. And these Gentiles will acknowledge that their trust, their thinking, their traditions rooted in paganism, have all been lies. They have been emptiness. Because God's faithfulness to Israel, both in judgment and in redemption, proves that He is the God of gods. And this is somewhat startling, is it not? Now this is not the first time in prophecy by any means that God has promised that the Gentiles would come to Him. But for most of Israel's history, it has been interpreted among the nation of Israel that it would be their righteousness that would cause the Gentiles to come unto the Lord. But here Jeremiah is telling the nation that it will be their failure and God's righteousness and mercy on behalf of Israel. God's actions toward Israel within the context of their failure that will be the primary factor in the repentance of the Gentile nations. And once again, if you're not seeing a prophetic link here to Jesus Christ, you're missing it. Because what does Paul say in Romans? Romans chapter 9, and 10, and 11. That it is in part, that blindness of Israel has happened in part, that the fullness of the Gentiles might come in. And so once again, we're seeing another Link in the prophetic chain that tells us that what God is promising here ought to still rest, not just in the forthcoming judgment of Babylon, but in the the promises of, of the first and the second advent of Jesus Christ here. We then turn back to Jeremiah's song of praise to the word of the Lord in verses 20 and 21. Jeremiah says, Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods, Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know I will cause them to know mine hand and my might and they shall know that my name is the Lord. God asks what we might call a ridiculous question. Should a man make a God for himself which is no God? Well, what good is it for a man to make a God for himself that is no God? What good is that to him? Therefore, God says, I'll, know them to, I'll cause them to know that there's a difference. My hand, my might. I will cause them to understand that you can't just make a God. You can't just pull a God out of thin air, create Him for yourself, call Him a God, and in doing so, eliminate all accountability to the true and living God and then say, we're okay here. This is, this is good. And so God says, all the nations will know in this judgment and in this redemption, in the judgment of Israel and in their eventual redemption, that I am the Lord. This will cause the Gentiles to come to me and this will cause Israel to come to me when they see these things happen. That's our exposition this evening. Many points of application. I want to give you five points this evening. Point number one, about the house of mourning and the house of mirth. Jeremiah is told both to avoid the house of mourning and the house of mirth in this chapter. Jeremiah is told not to feel compelled to mourn deeply for those who knew the truth, but rejected it, while simultaneously not joining the people in their delusion that they would not be judged through the house of mirth. Have no more to do either in mourning or in feasting with these people. That's the message that the Lord gave to Jeremiah. Now, there are a couple of different ways that a person could take this point. But as I've sought to understand and apply this concept to my own heart, I I kind of like to think of this as what, what I've termed in my own heart the sanity commandment. Jeremiah loves this nation and he loves its people. We've read that in several points of the text. Jeremiah is called to see into the near future and to observe the demise of those that he loves. He can see it. He knows it. The truth of God and God's justice, in fact, demand it. But what would happen if Jeremiah allowed this reality to dominate his emotional state? What would happen if Jeremiah truly allowed himself to feel the weight of the burden of the judgment of God upon this people? To that extent. Well, he'd kind of go crazy, my thought. And on the other end, God forbid that he should callous himself to such a spiritual state that he joins with them in the mirth and revelry as if there's nothing wrong. It's the privilege of God's people to live in a middle ground, and I exhort you to that middle ground this evening. When we talk about things like we're reading in Jeremiah, even more so perhaps what we're reading about in Revelation, there's a tension is there not in the heart of God's people in one sense we see the judgment of the Lord as our vindication that when I hear the news and I hear the evil and I see the evil that when I have people treat me ill yell at me and call me all sorts of names and scorn at me, scorn me and laugh at me for my faith there's a part of the judgment of God that says that's for them and I will be vindicated one day but then there's another part of us that recognizes that these same people that scorn us and that mistreat us that that same unbelief is going to see our loved ones for some of us our neighbors for most of us in the same sinner's hell and for every person that you think of that has scorned and who has mocked and who, who has wronged you where you might have a glimmer of hope in the vindication of judgment, there's any number of people to whom when you think about judgment, it can become crippling in sorrow. And so we find this middle ground where I don't become callous, to the sins of the world around me. I don't look at the sins of the world around me and simply say, "Eh," you know, unbelievers are going to unbelieve. And so in doing that, lose that pang of love and of urgency to see people one to Christ. While simultaneously... not going so far to the other end of recognizing evil for what it is that when I think of these people who are my mission field, I get that glimmer in my eye that says they're going to burn one day. We don't want to be on either place. So I call this the sanity commandment. How to find that place of balance whereby I'm not spending my life in the house of mourning, mourning for those who have asked for the judgment that is coming to them, While simultaneously, I don't spend my life in the house of mirth overlooking the judgment of God that is coming to them. I sit in that place where I lovingly desire that all men would come to repentance just as God does. But I simultaneously hold within my heart a hope that keeps me going that says, I don't have to vindicate myself. I can endure today because there's coming a day where God will right these wrongs. And we need to find that place in our own hearts, in our own lives, where we maintain our burden for the lost. But we also maintain that hope in God's vindication. We need them both. And that's what God was calling Jeremiah unto as he called him to stay out of the house of mourning and out of the house of mirth. We long for the repentance of the lost, but we should not become crippled by it. Point number two about caring about God's word. In verse 12, God said that He would bring this evil upon this people because they walked in the imaginations of their own heart that they may not hearken unto Me. As I put this sermon together, there was a weight upon me because of this verse God is not a man. God is not fickle and emotional, but God often seeks to relate himself to us by describing emotional responses, right? And the emotional response that is driving Jeremiah is indignation for this reason, that the nation who claims to love him, to love God, simply doesn't care what God actually thinks. Now, we are the church of God. All of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our sin has been placed upon Christ. We are the spotless body of the living Christ who is our head. When the Father looks at us, he does not see a breach of the law, he does not see our sin, he does not see our rebellion as he saw a breach of the law in the day of Israel, not because we have not and do not offend God's law, but because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, because in Christ we are complete, because Jesus became a curse for us, lifting the curse from us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. But the whole of the New Testament epistles stress that this should work in us a deep and abiding love which compels us to care about obeying God's word. In this chapter, we read about a group of people that did not care about God's word. They heard it, they knew it, but they didn't care about it. And I exhort you this evening to renew in your heart a passion to care about God's word. To take God's word and to elevate it in your heart and to elevate it in your life and to, when you hear God's word, hear those words with weight. Hear those words with a gravity that says, Jesus Christ has redeemed me. I am these vessels of of God's blessing, and because of that, I am going to care what God has to say to me. There are certain people in this world um, whose words carry more weight with me than others people that I respect, people who have in the past uh, shown themselves to have wisdom. And so I've listened to them in the past and they've given me good advice. And so their words hold more weight with me. There are some people that come up and tell me something and um, I appreciate them telling it to me, but I'm... I, Their words don't have a whole lot of weight with me because they don't have a lot of capital with me. I I don't have a lot of respect for them or um, I don't share in their opinion or whatever the case may be. But then there are some people where they come up to me and they tell me something and it really matters what they say. What we have seen this evening is Jeremiah proclaiming the words of the Lord to a nation and a nation that when the Lord speaks, it really didn't matter. They didn't really listen. Don't be like that. Don't be like that child who, when the parent speaks, it's just kind of like, "Oh, Mom and Dad said something again. And it doesn't really matter. Be like the child who, when mom and dad say something, they respect mom and dad, they love mom and dad, they're going to listen to what mom and dad have to say. Be like the child who has been redeemed by the true and living God and care about God's word. Number three, about the promise of Gentile salvation. It's really neat, is it not, to see God layer his promises. We read of the doom of the nation for chapter upon chapter. And then here comes Jeremiah 16. And within Jeremiah 16, we see these two little gems. First, we see this little gem that there's coming a day when all of the nation of Israel will be regathered from all the places where they have been scattered. And that there will be a redemption. And so important, so great will be this redemption. So uh, impacting will be this redemption that it will literally overshadow the redemptive legacy of the Book of Exodus, to where the nation of Israel will begin to root their identity not in the redemption of Exodus, but in the redemption of uh, of this regathering. And of course, we read about that in the prophecies that we see fulfilled in the Book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The second little gem that we found here, which is directly related to this regathering, to the fact that this regathering will be for them to accept their Messiah, is this little gem of Gentile salvation. That when the Gentiles see what God is doing in Israel, they will reject their false gods, they will reject their false traditions, and they will come to the light. Now, we're waiting for the day when the redemption of Israel will be fully realized because currently they are rejecting their Messiah. But the redemption of Israel has already been purchased, right? It was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross, just as it was purchased for all men on the cross. And indeed, since that purchase, since the day that the purchase of the redemption of Israel was complete, the Gentiles have flocked to that mercy, have flocked to that light through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I love this. I love how God has couched these promises in a familiar message so that as we are reading of these judgments again and again and again, all of a sudden, wait a minute, there's something different about this one. Wait a minute, this promise of regathering. Wait a minute, there's a direct contrast being made here between the, the exodus and this Next redemption what is that and you trace all of these lines of thoughts through and there's only one place where all of it leads and that's to Jesus Christ on the cross that's to the day that Jesus died and shed his blood for the the world and then of course the coming day when Israel will accept him as their Messiah that's connected to Gentile salvation we would expect that as we read the New Testament and this leads us to our fourth point about man's imposed expectations upon God's divine plans. There are any number of biblical wonders. Paul calls them mysteries, which are previously unrevealed truths that are revealed in a later time and only revealed by special revelation, not simply by deduction or ob- observation. There's any number of these mysteries surrounding Gentile salvation. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 that the mystery of godliness is great, specifically in that it was preached among the Gentiles. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul extols the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which he says is, Christ in you, our hope of glory. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, I've alluded to this already. Paul says this, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. This is the mystery that really amazes me. That as we read in Jeremiah about the Gentile nations coming to the knowledge of the Lord, God is not connecting this Gentile salvation to the redemption of Israel and Israel's righteousness. God is rather... Connecting Israel's rejection of God's attempt to redeem them and to clothe them in God's righteousness with Gentile salvation. So that Paul tells us that blindness has happened to Israel in part. As a part of the plan for God to redeem the Gentile nations. This is why we see Gentile salvation in Jeremiah 16 connected with these prophetic promises of Israel's rejection, judgment, and then eventual regathering. In this context, I remind you, especially as we continue to walk through Revelation in our morning series, of the thousands of pages and hundreds of hours of sermons focusing upon speculation and assumptions regarding what what God is going to do. Could anyone have imagined, could Jeremiah have possibly imagined in the day that he is writing in Jeremiah 16 about God judging his people and regathering his people... There will be a regathering, but first there must be judgment, and then this promise that the Gentiles will come to the light. Could anyone have guessed or assumed in any way, shape, or form that God was going to do it in the way he did it? that God was literally going to send Messiah, that Messiah was going to live and offer the kingdom, that the nation would reject Messiah's offer of the kingdom, that they would kill Messiah, and that it was Israel killing Messiah, number one, that would be the means through which redemption is secured on the cross, but then number two, would be the circumstance through which Israel confirmed themselves in blindness for a time and Gentiles began to flock to the light of Jesus Christ as never before, to the light of God. And then it would be this uh, church, this new body that, that has... Uh, claimed Christ and claimed the God of the Old Testament that would bring about a jealousy in the heart of Israel that would continue to work in them until the end when God will finish His judgment, regather them, and then it will be a part. Then that will be a part of regathering Israel back to Himself. When the prophecy of Gentile salvation, of which promise Jeremiah sixteen is a part was interpreted by Israel, instead of that promise becoming a capstone of their teaching on God's mercy and power to redeem, however, they turned it into a capstone of their own moral superiority. In other words, when Israel read these promises, all throughout the Old Testament of Gentile salvation, they said, Israel will be righteous and the Gentiles will come to our light. Little did they know that what God was actually saying when he was preaching on Gentile salvation is that Israel would be darkness, would reject the Lord, and that their rejection would be a part of what draws the Gentiles to the light of God. And let this be a reminder to us. I hope that that made sense. To be careful about our imposed implications or expectations of God's divine plans. We talked this morning, we finalized our thinking about Mystery Babylon, right? and I gave you all of that stuff about what it might be and what it may not be, if I'm wrong on all of that, that would not necessarily be surprising. Because we tend to, as humans, impose our expectations upon God's plans, don't we? We tend to do this in our daily lives as well. I oftentimes warn people, one of the things that we do in our prayers is we pray a prayer that we ask for something, Lord, give me something Lord help me in this way and we have in our minds the way we think God is going to bring it about and then when he doesn't bring it about in the way that we thought we either say God didn't answer my prayer or we look at God as if God what's going on here How? Well, what, are you, what are you doing I prayed for patience why are bad things happening to me well because you prayed for patience right Right? That's not what I think of when I pray for patience. When I pray for patience, I think that I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to wake up in the morning a more patient person. But if God, if if, if you pray for patience, what is God probably going to do for you? He's going to bring a lot of people into your life that require patience. Right? He's going to bring a lot of circumstances into your life that require you to be a patient person. And that's going to teach you patience because that's how humans learn. Right? We don't... Just wake up one day patient. We have to learn to be patient. We have to make the choices. We oftentimes impose our expectations upon God. We impose our expectations about how we think God's going to answer prayers. We impose expectations upon how we think uh, God ought to provide for our needs. We impose expectations upon all of the elements of the character of God. And may I just encourage you. That all throughout the Old Testament, we see prophecies. And as we look at how Israel read these prophecies throughout their years, what they did leading up to even Messiah was they imposed their expectations upon how they thought God was going to bring these things about. And so instead of being loyal to the God that was going to bring these things about, they were loyal to their expectations about how they thought God was going to bring these things about. And it caused them to have a stumbling block in their way because they tripped over their own expectations of what they thought God was going to do. Don't be that way. Be loyal to the God behind your prayers. Be loyal to the God behind the promises That when you see God promising things That when you recognize God's provision And His promises of provision When you recognize God's faithfulness And His promise to be faithful When you identify that God will lead That God will provide That God will answer your prayers That doesn't necessarily mean That He's going to do it In the way you expect Him to So be looking for Him Don't be looking for what you expect of Him be looking for Him. And it might very well be that that thing in your life that you've been praying for, or you've been desiring, or you've been wondering about, or that thing that you say, God is supposed to do this, or He is this way, but I'm not seeing it. Maybe it's not because it's not there. Maybe it's just because you're looking for it in all the wrong places. Because we do this. We impose our expectations upon God's divine plans and God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Finally, this evening, about man making gods which are no gods. Now again, this is a point which we've hit in several contexts. We've talked about man-making gods which are no gods. We've talked about why, because a large majority of men have no capacity to deny that which is obvious, namely that there is a God, that God exists, but they still long for relief from the guilt of sin or an excuse to do what they want to do without their conscience bothering them. And so they create a God in their own image which accepts their brand of sin and which sees them as good and righteous but is more than willing to judge everyone else for the things that they do wrong which allows us to have a hierarchy where no matter what I do, I'm in good shape and no matter what they do, they're in bad shape because my God is formulated in my own image. Of this I remind you, not only is this a fantasy... It may have the physical and emotional effect with a, which a person wants which is to release themselves of the pangs of their own conviction but it doesn't actually do anything as it relates to the spirit realm. There is no joy that can be produced by a counterfeit notion of God that can compete with the joy of knowing the true and living God. There is no release of conscience that comes from fooling myself into thinking that I've met the standard of a God that is no God. There is no release of guilt that can compete with the actual release that comes from being declared righteous by the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is no freedom in pursuing our own desires in the name of a false God, desires which are in fact sinful but which I have justified in the name of this false God that can ever compare to the freedom that is found in submitting to the true living word of God and not only are these false gods and these false systems systems of emotional and behavioral manipulation not only are they inferior to the real thing in every way but when a man makes a God which is no God in order that he might manipulate himself into feeling better about himself or even manipulate himself into some moral actions it costs them something I have to spend the rest of my life earning the favor of this false god that I've erected. And these false gods, which we erect in our own image, give us nothing in return, nothing real at least. They can manipulate our feelings and our perceptions, but they have no power to change us. They have no power to redeem us They are empty shells of our own self capacities, our own self deceptions, our own self discipline, which falls so short of any true freedom, any true joy, any true power. And they do all of this while actually charging us, asking for us loyalty to this false God, charging us for the inferiority which it gives to us contrast this to what Jesus Christ gives. The false God that we erect in our own image that we must for the rest of our lives swear fealty to. That we must appease in whatever ways our mind has concocted by which we must appease this false God or live in that guilt or live in that shame. And and in in return it gives us nothing but self-deception. Contrast that to Jesus Christ who offers a free gift A free gift. He does not charge us. You do not rest under the charge or under the thumb of this God. He offers a free gift, no strings attached, but which asks of us the thing which on its surface we feel we want and need the most, but which in reality is the thing standing between us and what we've all longed for. The only thing God asks of us To receive this free gift is our will, our submission, belief. Give him your will, and he will give you the world to come. Give him your will, and he will give you his joy. Give give him your will, and he will give you his peace. It's genuine. It's superior. And the only thing it costs you is your submission. So we read today a familiar passage, but... It came with some new twists. A new perspective on redemption. A new perspective on the future redemption of Israel. A new perspective on Gentile salvation. And some reminders. First about the house of mourning and the house of mirth. Can you find that middle ground? That middle ground where you love your mission field. You love the people who have rejected the word of God. You're reaching out to them. You're telling them. But simultaneously you're maintaining that hope and understanding that the Lord is the one who will vindicate you one day? Do you care about God's word? As Israel did not care about God's word, are you living in a manner that reflects a care for God's word? Do you see, as we see this promise of Gentile salvation and man's imposed expectations, how God took this Rebellion of Israel, their lack of caring for God's word and used it as the catalyst for the Gentile world to come unto him. And then do you see how God is thus using the Gentile world as the catalyst to bring Israel back to him? And in doing so, as we see this today, what in your life are you living? What circumstances have played out in your life whereby you have in your mind an expectation of what God should do or how he should do it that might be false. So that you're wondering, God, what are you doing here? Why aren't you answering my prayers when in fact it's just that God is not meeting your imposed expectations upon him. And then finally, remember that the gods which are no gods can do you very little good in this earth and no good for the life that is to come and even whatever good manipulating ourselves and in self-deception into some sort of actions or inactions can do for us no matter what good that might do on a temporal plane it comes at what cost what is that false God asking of you in return when there is a free gift a genuine thing that Jesus Christ has offered us if only we will submit our will